0: Turning to 1 Corinthians 5, this um, picture that's everywhere is our reminder that we're in a series looking in 1 Corinthians where we're highlighting uh, five, he said trying to click, uh, big issues and five ideas that make up the bulk of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. These differing issues... Uh, that the church was facing, and frankly not doing too well on they were all over the place on each of these issues uh, is responded to with reference to the gospel and what the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ means practically this week 's talk has been trailed, uh, trailed on social media by saying i 'm going to be talking about sex this morning uh, you that 's just there big issue five chapters five to seven sex well. Sex is part of what these chapters cover, um, but there's much more than that, because these chapters that we're going to look at this morning are, are more broadly about judgment and mercy. That's a still from the film Gladiator, and uh, the, it's the Roman emperor with his thumb hovering at the end of a gladiatorial battle, there's a judgment to be made over those who fought. A thumbs up meant that they would be allowed to live... And thumbs down would mean that they would go ahead and be killed. It's a little moment of judgment. Will there be Will there be mercy? Or not? What's the right choice? And these chapters touch on both judgment and, and mercy. And um, it's an interesting question: Does the world need more mercy? Or more justice? Uh, And for each of us, probably our answer to that question is as much affected by our personality as by what the world really needs. Uh, Does the world need more mercy or more justice? Should uh, Brits who've gone to the Middle East to fight for Islamic State be allowed to return to the UK? Should there be mercy, should there be justice? Should a TV presenter be sacked as has happened this week for posting a tweet that seemed to be racist? Should there be mercy, should there be judgment? Should a nurse who caused patient a patient harm by giving the wrong drug, should that nurse be allowed to continue in the job? Should there be mercy? Or should there be justice? And, and who has a right to decide anyway? So that's the big issue. It's not just about sex. It's about being a moral society. How, how can we be a, a moral society? How do judgment and mercy fit together? And the big idea is that our morality as a, as a society can and should be shaped by the cross of Christ. So there's a picture of Christ on the cross, and I'm going to use that word cruciform a few times. Cruciform literally means cross-shaped. The big idea is that society thrives and the church is healthy when we have a cruciform morality. And what does that mean? Well, in a headline, it means this, that, that sin matters and sin is forgiven. That actually, instead of seeing a tension between mercy and justice or judgment, there's another way shown through the cross in which both sin matters and sin is forgiven. It says later in the book of 1 Corinthians that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. It tells us that that human wrongdoing, it it is a big deal. It's not just something that can be brushed under the carpet. Um, We uh, used to have um, a member of the church who was German, and, uh, and he was going to be leading something in our church life. And I said, you know, there may be some cultural issues around your, your, your German approach to things and the way that the majority of people involved who are, who are British might want to do things. I said, you know, sometimes British people find Germans just a little bit hard-edged. And he said, oh, it's fine. He said, I know all about you Brits and how you work. He said, I know that you just love to brush everything under the carpet. <laughs> the cross tells us that sin matters. It, it's, a, it's a big deal, and it cannot just be brushed under the carpet, and we can't just pretend it, it, it doesn't matter. And at the same time, the cross tells us that sin wonderfully is forgiven. Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, verse 7, for example, says very plainly, through Christ's blood, that is through his death, we have the forgiveness of sins. The cross speaks of both of these things, and there are two kinds of error that we can make in focusing only on one or only on the other. So if we focus only on judgment, what that achieves is exclusion. And what we see in human society is that those groups with the highest standards are often the smallest groups of people because the effect of those high standards is to exclude more and more people. And that doesn't build society. It, uh, being judgmental alone is insufficient for society to thrive. Uh, but equally, if we have mercy alone, like this girl who's been told she can eat whatever she likes, we, we don't tend to make the wisest of choices. When there's n- if, we're, if we're led to believe that there's no consequence for our wrongdoing, we, we tend to, to make worse choices. It's an interesting question to ask. If you, if you knew for sure that you wouldn't be caught doing something, what would you do? If you, if you knew for certainty you wouldn't be caught and you'd get away with it, what would you do? Oh, some of you are having some quite devious thoughts <laughs> right now. I probably shouldn't have encouraged them. The fact is that the fear of punishment is something, and the sense that sin matters, that it has consequences, does shape how we live as well. And so somehow what we need to reach for is this cruciform morality, a morality that's shaped both by the knowledge that sin matters and by the fact that sin is forgiven. And thankfully, we don't have to make up what that looks like because the chapters that we're going to read this morning give us some worked out examples of what it's like when those two things, mercy and judgment, come together. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 5, the whole of the chapter, uh, and it's about responding to sin. This is what Paul wrote. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you mustn't associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So this is the situation. The church in Corinth at this time was was, uh, intensely relaxed, even proud of having someone in the fellowship who was sleeping with his uh, his stepmother. That's what was going on, and Paul's answer to that is to say this matters. <laughs> Something has to be done about it. He's careful to say, don't don't start judging the whole world. Don't take over a sort of moral policeman's role for everyone in your whole society. If you were to do that, it would overwhelm you, and you'd have to just leave the world. But do discipline those inside the church. Don't judge those outside the church, Paul writes, but do discipline inside the church. And the, the discipline that is described here is quite simply a time out for the offender. That he would be excluded from their fellowship, given a, given a time out to reflect on what he's been doing. what its its nature is, what its consequences are, in the hope that he'll realize that what he's been doing is wrong and change his mind. So the language of handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is not the way that we would commonly talk about one another, but what it means is what I've, I've just described. Let him be exposed to living life without the constant companionship and support of the Christian church, and and that flesh, which is a word meaning the, the sinful tendency, there's a hope that it will be destroyed by that, that this process will lead to cleansing for the person concerned. And the hope is one of restoration. It's not that... The idea is to do in this individual, but rather the hope is that through this discipline, this person will be changed so that, as it says in verse 5, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, it may have occurred to you as we read those verses, didn't Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors, with prostitutes? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus ate with immoral people. It's there again and again through the Gospels. What makes sense of the difference between these two passages is that Jesus was eating with immoral people as they were making their way into the kingdom. But here, Paul's writing to the church, talking about people who are already disciples, claiming that they are followers of Christ and yet Living in a way that ignores Christ's teaching, which is a rather different situation. Actually, these verses chime with something that Jesus himself said about what you do when a brother or a sister uh, is found to be sinning in a, in a persistent kind of a way. And in Matthew 18, Jesus outlines a process that should be gone through. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus' words, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Can you hear the heart of that again? That like, This stuff needs talking about. The reason that it needs talking about is because in talking about it, there is the prospect of, of something good coming that you would win the brother or sister over. So if someone sins, talk to them alone, just between the two of you. And the hope is that you win them over, that they realize what they've been doing is wrong and change takes place. That's verse 15. Verse 16 allows for the fact that they might not listen. Verse 16 says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that everything may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's a next stage. If they don't listen to you alone, take another couple of people, have the conversation again, Jesus says. And of course, if they listen now, you've won them over. Jesus says, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. It's an escalation that's going on here. What if they refuse to listen to the church? Well, this is the situation that Paul sees in 1 Corinthians. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And there's a final stage of church discipline that it's hoped will provoke somebody to realize their error of their ways and still with the hope of winning them over. The purpose throughout this process is, is restoration, and this process allows for the, the maximum space possible for people to listen and to change, whilst respecting their dignity as much as possible by keeping things private as much as they can be. Both uh, the grievance and disciplinary procedures required by English law uh, conform to this kind of process, by the way. There's a wisdom that's recognized in our nation's employment law that when, some, when there's a dispute between people in a workplace, whichever way it's, the, the complaint arises from an employee or from their boss, there's a process that goes like this. You have a one-to-one conversation. If that doesn't resolve things, someone else gets involved both ways around. If need be, you can end up at an employment tribunal, which is a, is a, is a bigger thing. So here's church discipline. Uh, the end result is that people may be excluded from the church who will not accept correction. Uh, as Oxford Community Church, we've only had to do this very, very rarely. Uh, what happens much more commonly is that somewhere in this, in this process, uh, hearts get softened uh, and change takes place. That's, that's the much, much more common thing to happen. Returning to 1 Corinthians 5, actually, in 1 Corinthians 5, I don't know whether you noticed, but there are two reasons given for going through this process. The first of them is what has been what Jesus himself named, which is the hope of a, of a provocation to repentance that, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, in handing this guy over to Satan as a way of describing letting him be exposed outside of the church to all that that entails... Um, that actually he, his flesh would be destroyed, his spirit would be saved, that good would come of it. Uh, there's another reason that's given in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and it's, it's, the reason is a kind of quarantine. These are a couple of people in Wuhan right now where coronavirus is a concern, and whole areas of that great nation of China are being quarantined, people returning to other countries around the world from China are being, being quarantined at the moment. That's what all the stuff about yeast and Passover in verses 6 to 8 is all about. So this is, let me explain. When the Jews, the Hebrews, uh, left Egypt in a hurry in the time of the Exodus, there wasn't time to allow the bread to rise before baking it for their supper. It was all in a rush. When it happened. And so the bread that they ate as they departed, they took with them as they departed for the Exodus, was flat bread, unleavened bread, bread that had not been given time to rise, did not have yeast in it, because that was, that was the fast food that you could make. And so the idea of eating, or the, the command actually to eat unleavened bread, flat bread without yeast in it, was given to the people of Israel. to to make them remember what it was like when the Exodus took place. (laughs) God got them out quickly. And and so a connection was made between remembering the Passover when God delivered people and having flat bread without yeast in it. And to this day, when Jewish families celebrate Passover, there's a little game that they play to make sure that the children understand what's going on. The adults go through the whole house getting rid of anything in the house that's got yeast in it, because the command for Passover is get rid of the, un, get rid of the leavened bread, the risen, the yeasty bread, and, and have this unleavened flatbread. So the adults go through the house and they get rid of everything with yeast in it from the house. And then, to involve the children, they find a, a little bit of yeasty bread and then they hide it somewhere in the house. And the children are sent to go look for it so that the child that finds it can be the one that finds the last bit of yeast in the house and succeeds in in finding it. and then they can throw it out and they can together say as a family the house is now clean we've dealt with it and that's what Paul's talking about saying take that take that attitude which is this rigorous determination to get rid of everything that would uh, pollute Get rid of everything that might in some way infect you. The way that you go about things at Passover, where you're really rigorous in getting all of the yeast out, take that attitude towards this immorality. The point being, God God cares about the purity of his church. It's, It's something that matters to him. Um, I washed our car last week. It was very needful. Hadn't happened for a long time. I it got to that point when, whenever we touched the car, we came away with mucky hands, which wasn't which was getting to be frustrating. So I washed the car. Um, washing the car did not increase its fuel efficiency, and it did it did not make it go any faster. Uh, but I am happier with it clean. It's nice, actually. Uh, I don't know what it is in in your life that that when it's clean, you're like, "Oh, that's better." Um, I I imagine there's something, even if it's just your spouse. I I I don't know. Um, But God wants His church to be clean. He wants His His church to be healthy. He wants his church to be to be free from infection, and and so Paul says, take this stuff seriously. I mean, you've been boasting about what someone's been doing, and it's not even just that you shouldn't have been boasting, but there was something to do about this. You should have taken some action. There should have been some discipline. You should have dealt with it because it matters. The next bit of our two chapters goes on to talk about disputes in the church, and I will read the text for you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? how much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it really possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So there's a simple way of summing this up, which is that where there are disputes in the church, and disputes do occur in the church, Paul says, still follow the Matthew 18 process. Stick with that. Trust. Trust that by going through those steps that Jesus outlined, that that will work things through and that God will give to the church the wisdom that is needed to see that process through well. As it says in verse 7, if you, uh, if you go hard at it with lawsuits to try to resolve things, you're completely defeated already. And there's these really poignant questions from Paul, which take us back to the cross, actually. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You put that perhaps in slightly different words. It's better to give way than to sustain the dispute. It's better to forgive than to be proven right. This is a cruciform morality, a cross-shaped morality. Jesus, who was king of kings, after his trials, was taken before a whole company of soldiers. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him, and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And they spat on him, and they took the staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they'd mock him, they mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. And as they crucified him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. It's better... To give way than to sustain the dispute. That's a cruciform morality, and it's better to forgive than be proven right. Our last section, 1 Corinthians 6, and from verse 9. There's a few challenges still in the end of this passage that we have for this morning. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You say, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh." Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." There are two potentially uh, troubling, maybe more than two potentially troubling things. Just in the first few verses there, verses 9 to 11, I want to take a couple of minutes to comment on them. The first is what seems to be, well, this troubling phrase, wrongdoers will not enter the kingdom of God. And that's troubling because we all do wrong sometimes, right? So if if wrongdoers don't enter the kingdom of God, like, eek, because that's all of us. It's going to be an empty sort of a place, isn't it? Well, praise God, a couple of verses later, there is another word which helps us understand Paul's thinking, and it's the word justified. Justified. Uh, This is a, a word that speaks about our status in God's kingdom. To be justified is like being granted citizenship of a country. Even though we were by nature foreigners to God's ways, Christians who've been born again are given a new identity. Justification means that despite the sins that we were born in and grew up with and even continue to do, God graciously forgives us. He declares in justifying us, he declares that he now views us as belonging to his people. And he declares that he will now view us as his innocent children. That's what the word justification, justified, means. Uh, it's sometimes said, uh, just, justify, justification means it's just as if I'd never sinned. To help you remember that, that's what it means. So um, you may want to dig more into the whole idea of justification because there's, there's there's depth there beyond what we'll cover this morning, but it means this in practice, that we don't have to behave right in order to keep our place in the house, but rather that it's a privilege to be in the house, we are secure in belonging here, and that motivates us to want to do what's right. So, so the word justification and the experience of being justified means that actually We're not living under some cloud of insecurity that God might cast us off the next time we do something. It means that if we, this morning as we break bread, and you, I trust, come forward and experience afresh the reality that God has forgiven all that needs forgiving in your life, and you you start walking home and you start thinking, well, with a theme of this morning, let's go with having lustful thoughts on the way home, and before you get home, you're run over by the proverbial bus what's your what's your eternal destiny is it just bad luck that you got knocked over in a moment when you hadn't kept short accounts with god and had started sinning again no 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 you're all right to put it another way justification means that when we are born again and come to christ we're not only forgiven all the things that we have done wrong but forgiveness is pronounced over the whole of our lives past present and future And so we live in the secure knowledge that not only has God forgiven us, but that he will forgive us because we've turned to him. Wrongdoing prevents us entering the kingdom of God only if we sustain it in deliberate rebellion against the forgiveness that God offers us instead. Verse 10, there's another phrase that may have jumped out to you and that may be troubling for you where it says... In verse 10, in the list of things that are bad, men who have sex with men. There's actually two Greek words here that are translated into one phrase. And the two words refer to those who take an active role in gay sex and those who take a passive role in gay sex. There were other words in the Greek language that were used to describe exploitative or abusive Uh, homosexual relationships, they're not used here. Uh, I really can't do this subject justice today. Um, I just want to say a couple of things that are headlines. I want to say that it's an abomination against the Lord that gay people are bullied and abused. And I want to say that I'm sorry, as one person that represents the church, I'm sorry that the church has been complicit over many, many years in the unfair treatment of non-heterosexual people. Those things need to be said again and again and again. We have not got this right in practice. And we have much to learn I also want to say that if you're here or you're listening to the audio online and you're, you're not straight, then I also want you to know that you're not alone. Uh, since before I joined this church in 1993, uh, it has had, always had, members who experience same-sex attraction, some of whom would identify as gay or lesbian, And for those people, there have been three kinds of outcome that I've seen over the years. Um, Some have lived and are living and are determined to live celibate lives and are resolved upon that and finding grace to do so. Others have described change taking place and are now in a heterosexual marriage. There, There are some such people... Uh, amongst us. And there's a third outcome that I've seen happen over the years, which is that um, there are others who've not felt able, or I don't know, I shouldn't, read, shouldn't pretend to know the depths of their soul, but have chosen not to, um, didn't feel they could embrace either of those two outcomes, and have moved on from OCC as a church that is determined to keep reading scriptures like this one I've just read um, at, at face value. Most of those people that I've heard back from after they've left us, uh, it's not a huge number but who've, who've left us in that way, but of those who have, the most common thing I've heard is I've wanted to keep on listening to them, is how they've struggled to find a church that is both biblical and embracing of same-sex partnerships, and it's a frustration to them. Father, I pray for anyone for whom these few words in this text are particularly affecting, for whatever reason that may be, because of their own lived experience or those of uh, the the experience of others whom they love or the choices of others whom they love, however it may be. Lord, thank you that uh, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, and I pray that use would come out of these words for everyone this morning. Lord, I do pray that you'd soften our hearts. Lord, where any of us have been caustic, and unkind in the way that we've spoken about sexuality, Lord, would you forgive us and cause us to love as you love? Set us on a right path, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We need to finish by uh, just noting the last what the main theme of the last bit of this chapter, which is that. Your body, our bodies matter. The things that the Corinthians were saying, you know, I can do what I like, and this thing of, well, there's the stomach, and it's going to get destroyed anyway, so, like, whatever. But The thrust of all of that was, our bodies don't matter. We've come to Christ. The Holy Spirit's with us. We're spiritual, and because we're spiritual, our bodies don't matter, and that means we can do what we like with our bodies. Yay! That's how they were thinking. And Paul says, no. Bodies matter. And he gives several reasons why. In verse 14, he notes that Jesus was resurrected. Like, his body was resurrected. And Jesus is in heaven forever with a resurrected body. So Jesus' body mattered. You can't have a union with Christ that's not bodily in its, in its nature. Um, it says several times over, uh, in several verses, that as we're united with Christ, Christ lives, not, it's not just a spiritual relationship that we have, but Christ lives in our bodies. It says that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. So, so our bodies matter for that reason. We could note that we're, we're not simply um, spirits, to be human, we're not simply spirits who happen to have a body for useful purposes Rather, we are embodied spirits, and we are inspirited bodies. We're both of those things equally well, and they cannot be separated. The whole of what it means to be human is to be spiritual and to be physical. And there's a note in verse 16 that sex joins people deeply, even in the fleeting encounter with a prostitute a union takes place in which two become one flesh. There's a profound joining that takes place through our bodies. Our bodies have a power to join us deeply, specifically through a sexual encounter. And so Paul says, he gets to verse 18, there's something particular here about sexual immorality being against our own body. And I think the best way of understanding this is that of all the different wrong things that we can do with our body... Sex alone has this particular power to to join us deeply. Uh, You can damage your body with alcohol. In a sense, that's against your body, but that doesn't make your body one flesh with alcohol in, in the sense that two become one through the intimacy of a sexual relationship. You can harm your body directly through cutting Bringing direct injury to your body, but it it doesn't make you one with the knife. It doesn't it doesn't do something of that depth. And so it says in verse eighteen: flee flee sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. And we're going to finish by having space and time to do what. Um, To come before God in the way that that John has spoken about this morning, coming before him as dentist, (laughs) say, well, here we are, not just spirits, but here we are, embodied people. And I can't believe that we've got through all of that stuff this morning without at some point you feeling like a finger was placed on something for you. I I can't, and I'm sure that you can't either. So Jenny, I think, is going to lead us through this.